0: It's time right now for the David Feldman show. So get your ears on right and buckle in real tight.
1: Joining us are the Hirschenfelds. Dr. Philip Hirschenfeld is a real Freudian psychiatrist. He is the real deal. His son is not. Ethan Hirschenfeld is not the real deal. He's I wasn't
0: a- even, I'm not even a real Freudian patient.
1: <laughs> Ethan Hirschenfeld is not a real Freudian patient or psychiatrist. His alter ego, Dr. Samuel Benjamin, is the author of Today Is Now. Go buy Today Is Now. It has the Feldman guarantee. Yes. You buy this book and it doesn't change your life. I will reimburse you. Who is Dr. Samuel Benjamin? This is your Dr. Alter Samuel ego. Benjamin
0: is um, the... Founder and chief emotional officer of the New York American Institute of Eclectic Modality Therapy, which has its <laughs> headquarters in my apartment. Uh, <laughs> it's it actually, Dr. Benjamin had plans for a headquarters in that there's a very big empty space you might have seen on First Avenue, south of, U, of the UN. It's an entire city block. Yes. So Dr. Benjamin has plans, but no funding to build a giant international center for his work, to promote his work, to promulgate his work, to carry out his work. But there's no money. No one's interested yet. (laughs) So it's just, it's still just a hole in the ground. (laughs) So
1: let me ask Dr. Philip Hershenfeld a question about the land, the empty lot next to the UN, which Mm. has been there since I was a kid. Hmm. Is there anybody over the age of 95 who lives in New York who might be of a certain ethnic persuasion who doesn't insist that they could have bought the land where the UN was built? It seems to me everybody I know over the age of 95, which is me, (laughs) could have bought the land upon which the UN was built.
2: I,
3: I actually had a deposit in on it.
0: You know, it was where all the slaughterhouses were. So before it was the UN, that's where all of the animals were slaughtered. So that entire stretch just smelled like cow blood. What does that tell you?
1: Well, I don't know. That the UN is on the site of a former slaughterhouse.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of cor- animals were killed right there. That whole stretch. Yeah, that's very, where all those very trains symbolic. pulled in from.
1: You know, the, the U.N. Class. is a great organization. It yeah. is. It would be Absolutely. nice if the United States joined it yeah. and obeyed it. We, we have cafeteria.
0: Some... Uh, the U.N., boy, you can get
1: anything there. No, I've never been. Did I you do model cafeteria... U.N.? <laughs> What's did that? Did you do model U.N. when you were a kid? Because we did model League of Nations. Yeah, and I had a Lego there. set. That was the closest. Oh, okay. I was going to do a joke about model <laughs> League of I, Nations.
3: I but, uh, heard from somebody who worked. For that august institution that they do absolutely nothing and everybody's just hanging around till they're vested in their pension.
0: That's a that's a malcontent. That's absurd. I want to know who that person is. Who is that rat? I know people who've worked there who who do work there.
1: They're 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 doing God's work. They they really are. It would be nice if the United States uh, did what. Before
0: we uh, tackle the big subjects today, I did want to just uh, suggest a moment of silence for uh, Paco Raban, yes, and Bert Bacharach, yes. Uh, I feel like those two should have collaborated. Now it's too late. Yeah. on a fragrance or
1: a song, yeah, they were both sweet. They were Bert Bacharach was pretty amazing. now as a as an opera singer, yeah, what can you tell us? It always amazes me that in a formal former life, you sang opera. Did you, Dr. Philip Hershinfeld, when he was growing up, did you ever imagine that your son would sing opera?
3: That was a very late develop. I mean, not late, late, but it was, you know, post post-teenage years. And it just exploded. And I loved every minute of it and went to various spots in the world to hear oh. him.
1: When did you realize Ethan was a genius? No, come I, I on. I use it's the word. Not, I know seriously, when it. did you realize it was actually brilliant? Let, you, let's you know, get back to the important. No, let's get back. Uh, Hang on. Paco, what, I want to ask you. Hold on. Paco Rabanne,
0: um I want to say something about. it. I didn't I didn't have any inklings towards becoming an opera singer or anything like that till after college really when I was studying with a teacher, an acting teacher who gave me some exercises, some vocal exercises. Um but um I did have earlier um attractions in association with Paco Rabanne namely
3: who is it for the ignorant among us
0: um Paco Rabanne was a was a a designer uh, who passed away at the advanced age of 88 the other day Okay. Uh, he made colognes?
1: Yes. It, wasn't there like a Paco Rabanne
0: cologne? Well, that's the thing. For my for my bar mitzvah, among the gifts I got, I still have it. I posted a picture of it on Facebook. I have a set of the cologne and the aftershave, the Paco Rabanne. I think that's Paco
1: Rabinowitz.
0: <laughs> well, I think I probably did assume that it was just a Jewish <laughs> name that was true. Um, Because like all of the brands, my maternal grandfather, he had a shirt company and they made off, made these knockoff shirts that they would sell at places like Alexander's and Gimbals and that kind of thing. And they all had fake European names. <laughs> <laughs> so they were all made by some guy on 33rd Street, but they all had some pseudo-European name. So Paco Raban, you're absolutely right. It really sounds like a fake name. But I still how have shocked
1: how shocked were you when you found out that Vidal Sassoon was an Israeli?
0: Right. That was less shocking. Tight jeans. I, sort of...
1: I was shocked that Vidal says soon. Was it sure,
0: it? That, that, that stuff you have should be a
3: collector's item now.
0: Yeah, you, I looked it up on eBay. It's, I think it's worth 20 bucks. Excellent. Uh, it was 12 in 1982. Uh, but who is giving, who are these perverted relatives who are giving uh, a newly minted 13-year-old a bottle of cologne and aftershave? <laughs> that is inappropriate in so many ways. No, no, no man ever should be wearing cologne. Cologne is disgusting. Just end of story. It, it, it used to be a thing back I in know, the day. But it's gross. But for a 13-year-old, I mean, come on. Okay. Were, were there any condoms in the package also?
1: Not that I know of.
3: Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: I was watching the Nancy Pelosi hagiography on HBO that the daughter did. You know, as as far as a love letter to your parent, you can't do any better than. Uh, Alexandra Pelosi's documentary about Nancy. And one of the things you do get a sense of is that Paul Pelosi, who is looking more and more like an Orthodox Jew these days. <laughs> so I don't know if you saw him at the State of the Union, oh, but
0: Rev, Rev Pelosi.
1: Uh <laughs> he's got the black hat on now. Uh so uh what was I talking about? Oh so they she has collected video of the Pelosi's and the family growing up, they're in Italy or they're celebrating some kind of birthday and they pour champagne. Nancy Pelosi's grandchildren are allowed to sip champagne, to sip wine. Um, Italians, Italians do that seven years Italy, old from
3: a very early age. Yes,
1: yeah. and yeah,
0: in fact, you, uh, if you're in Italy and you see a, a mother who's breastfeeding their actual their breasts are actually labeled white or red it's that's it's totally natural over there
1: (laughs) so can we stand in judgment of that we
3: can but you know we can stand in judgment of anything and we do and i think the verdict is out on whether
0: that's Good for the child, bad for the child. There are all sorts well, of The problem is if the baby is. It depends if the baby's driving later that day. Because <laughs> you got to take the keys away from the baby if you're going to let them have the wine. That's the main thing.
1: Well, it's probably safer than Grandpa Paul Pelosi driving. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't approve. I I, I was told that huh. Jews, the myth about Jews not being alcoholics is in fact a myth. And that it starts at their bar mitzvahs. That they they learn that there's always an uncle who says, "Come here, boy chick, and have some of this."
0: Yeah, I don't think that uh, those ethnic stereotypes when it comes to drinking are, are, are necessarily true. However, when it comes to cologne, <laughs> very true. You,
3: I knew a guy used to drink cologne. <laughs> he was I such like that. he he was such a raging alcoholic. He would drink Vitalis, which was a hair thing with a lot of alcohol Air in it.
4: Atomic.
1: Kitty Eat. Dukakis did that. I thought, I, but you were making a joke. Drink cologne. Like, it's not healthy to drink cologne. Oh, right? that's funny. He was not making that joke, but that's funny. You were not making the joke. I was not. I thought you were making a joke. It's not healthy to drink cologne. We, um, okay. So we have some questions from listeners. Okay. One of our listeners, we have listeners, we have people stuck in their car and they need to keep both hands on the wheel and they cannot fast forward to another podcast. This is a question. Does the mind have control over the body? Can we cause illness in our bodies or cure ourselves with our psyches? For example, positive thinking, strong spiritual beliefs. And I'm going to ask Dr. Hirschenfeld, a real psychiatrist.
3: Okay. There, there, there is actual scientific evidence that chronic stress, which is a brain phenomenon, affects the body in all sorts of different ways. And <clears throat> the less stressed you are in your life, in general, the healthier you are. So the answer is yes. And if you can lower that level of stress, I, I, I'm not a big fan of positive thinking. I don't know if that actually works, but maybe it does for some people. But if you can lower that stress, it's probably good for your body in general.
0: Absolutely. And let me just follow up on that. What, what happens is when you are stressed, uh, a, a hormone gets released by your pituitary gland. I believe it's called clearacil. <laughs> I might be saying that wrong, but the Clarasil starts coursing through your veins, and it can cause all sorts of problems. While clearing up your acne, <laughs> it, it will cause uh, heart problems. It can cause nerve problems. It can cause problems in your toes, in your in your earlobes. Cortisol, I think, is is it cortisol? Cortisol, that's right. Cortisol, no, cortisol. yeah, that's correct. cortisol. Cortisol.
1: Um, so I've been rubbing the wrong. Ointment yeah. on my face. Yeah,
0: but you're you're
1: keep doing what you're doing because you're <laughs> great. We think stress is. Some of us are led to believe that stress is mean means we're productive, we're working, we're we're important, right? We're in demand. I wow. don't have time to sleep. We take pride in being anxious and and stressful. Yeah,
0: it's very so, hard. Sarah, what? Yeah, I'm sorry. It's hard, to, it's hard to sit around and do nothing. Um, although I figured out how. Um, <laughs> I've, been, I've, been doing, I've been doing quite a bit of it. Um, so if anyone needs any tips <laughs> on how to do that. Um, but it, the funny thing is, you can sit around and do nothing and then feel stressed about that. Uh-huh. So we have a, an incredible capacity to generate that feeling. Um, And here's something I I learned, um, which is that if you're having an experience that's genuinely dangerous, like you're actually being threatened, say, by a wild animal or or your landlady or or who knows what. Or if you're thinking a scary thought, you still get that release of cortisol. It's the same. Your body doesn't distinguish between those two things. So what I'm saying is you should just stop thinking, avoid your landlady. (laughs) Just take those two steps. Dr. Well, F- basically get a, What I'm saying is get a mortgage, because then you don't have a landlady.
1: <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> I don't know. Dr. Hershenfeld, do people right. get cured or do they just get older? Because I've noticed as I get older, a lot of things that went on in my head yeah. are beginning to disappear. Maybe because I can't remember them. Probably. But there's also eh. Am I gonna? What? Why should I? It's called, it's called
3: wisdom. You do accumulate wisdom as you get older, and that affects some of the nonsense that drove you
0: earlier in life. Um, and yeah. Oh no, I'm so, I'm so sorry. Go on. No, you go on. No, um, you go on. No, it's a combination of wisdom and exhaustion. That's <laughs> so a powerful cocktail.
1: Exhaust them, I think is what it's called. You Exhaust know, them.
0: I heard an amazing quote this week. If anyone, ha- if you haven't heard it, definitely listen to it. It's uh, David Remnick from The New Yorker interviewing Salman Rushdie. The first interview he's given since he was attacked uh, right. four, four or five months ago. Um, and I think Rushdie said, um, apropos of sort of looking back at his career, um, uh, in, in your youth, you have to fake wisdom. And in your older age, you have to fake energy. <laughs> I really
1: like. Are that. there people who are born with wisdom? Are there certain dogs? Yeah. No. Nah. <laughs> it, takes, it
3: takes life experience. Haven't Some you people. ever heard
1: that they say this dog is an old soul or this kid oh, is an old know. soul? You've never heard that expression? I've heard all
0: sorts of bullshit. But, um, but what about that? Isn't that that biblical uh, phrase about the out of the mouths of babes? What yeah. Comes, is, it, is it the truth? Off come
1: pacifiers, I think. I think it's truth.
3: Older so never, people, I, Older people in general, as you get older, you do get happier. This is a well-studied phenomenon. That doesn't mean everybody,
1: but as a trend. So I'm young at heart, is basically, since, I, since I'm so miserable, it means okay. I have no. a long life ahead of me. Now, why? Why you yeah, you go might ahead.
3: be enjoying that misery tremendously and
1: mm-hmm. not even know it. So. Why would older people be happier? Because I do see it. You do see older people.
0: It's basically because the, you know, the reduced fare on the bus. <laughs> it's It's very exciting. I've seen people, they just really... <laughs> they light up when they see that they owe, that they're paying half for the same stuff that other people i think that's what it is mostly
1: why would you be old, why would you be happy that
3: you're older because your drives are less intense and it's our drives it's our desires that make us unhappy
0: wow but they don't don't the drives also make you happy that those extremes of 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 no all those excitements it sounds they sound like a stoic.
3: They make you happy when they are satisfied temporarily. Right. Are you okay. a Buddhist, for Christ's sake?
0: I, I like you guys keep mishearing. It. As I've explained, I'm a nudist, not a nudist. <laughs> Buddhist. You keep. I said it once, and now I've been labeled.
1: When did you realize? I'm going to. I was re-listening in the car to him. Yeah. When did you realize he's a genius? Seriously, when did you go? This kid is special. He can't look at him. Look at him. He can't take it. That's
0: another thing. Special. Yes. He was a very good
3: kid, very smart, very funny. You know, as the youngest, I think often. Funny. Oh, he's
1: the youngest. I didn't know that.
3: Funny is the weapon of the young.
0: Not only it's interesting. I'm not only the youngest of my siblings, but I'm also the youngest, if you include the parents, also. And
1: grandparents.
0: So I was really, really the youngest in that house. I mean, really the youngest.
1: It's a good thing Leonardo DiCaprio wasn't your father. Then you'd, you wouldn't be the youngest. Yeah.
0: Oh, I, you know, he took a lot of heat for if he was. Apparently he wasn't. But if he was dating that 19-year-old, it's so bizarre that people come. I mean, <laughs> he's a movie star. He he likes 19. That's why there are laws. You can't also excoriate the guy for then dating a woman who's a year above. I mean, if that's what he,
1: if that's his predilection,
0: well, it's problem.
1: I, I, I think there's a, some jealousy. I also think there's yeah. something. In order to please my female listeners, let yeah. me just pander and say I think there's something lacking in a man between sure. fifty. Sure, no, no, no. no. The company of a young woman. I'm just pandering now. No,
0: (laughs) absolutely. No, I'm not saying that it's the greatest choice or it shows that he's the most evolved person emotionally or anything, but it's you can't. I mean, you 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 can't
3: and what about Fatty Arbuckle? Innocent. You
1: think so? Oh, he he was. Was he? Yeah, he was he was innocent. Okay. Um, I withdraw my charge. And had he withdrawn that? There was he was he was set up and okay. by the way go watch his silent movies he was hmm. unbelievably funny yes he was going so it is the drives that make us miserable wanting desire is suffering
0: well yeah yeah
1: and yet we can't help ourselves and we because well, <clears throat> we can oh
3: we hear from the nudists now How can
1: we how can we well I think
0: again, I'm just quoting people more enlightened than myself, but the thing is, I said jokingly before to stop thinking, but that's that's the way to do it. Because the thinking just instantly gets into what do I want? What do I want? What do I want? And what don't I have? And how could I get that? And then you're back into that cycle of misery. So if you can just basically trick yourself into not into jumping off of that merry-go-round, and one way to do it is just by, you know, uh, Again, meditation is an incredible tool that I don't practice um, because it's impossible. I find it just very, but that's the thing. If you can just sit still and look at the wall or sit still and focus on your breath. And uh, just every time you get distracted from that, just bring yourself back to it. I can see everyone's falling asleep. The second thing about meditation, it's very, it's soporific. It's like getting hit on the head with a hammer to hear someone talk about meditation, but Apparently, that's so how Paul it works.
1: Pelosi. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: great meditation. Right,
1: I won't do it. I won't, I won't do the... Uh, yeah. He's okay, right? He's not... There's no brain damage, right? We don't know. We don't know.
3: But as an elder statesman myself, my
1: sleep, it's not
3: awful terrible, but it's its affected. And what do I do at 2.30 a.m. when I wake up? Gamble. I, med- I meditate. Oh. I do. I concentrated my breath in and out. And after a while, I don't even know how long the while is because
0: I fall asleep. It was interesting because you were saying in and out and your hands were going the opposite way. I feel like <laughs> you're doing it wrong. This is I'm, in <laughs> I'm dyslexic.
1: You're beyond <laughs> that. That's I am. Yeah. Yeah. The drive. I I know it's hard to believe, but I'm driven. I mean, I don't have anything to show for it, but uh, I'm driven and I get up every morning and I have things to do. But if Uh somebody were to look at me, they'd say, really, this is what you're you're this is what you're perseverating over all day. This is nonsense. And then I go outside in New York City and everyone has the same identical look on their face. They are not smiling and they have they are ruminating and chewing over their drives. David,
3: did you ever hear the word projection? Yes. You are clearly projecting your own face onto all of those other people, because it's not possible that everybody has the same
1: whatever. We are all unique. It does feel like that. Ethan. Doesn't it well, feel like that in New York where everybody can sees-
0: feel like that? But I know I know what you're describing because I used to have that same feeling. If you're if you especially if if you live in Manhattan and you're not a banker or if you live in Manhattan and you're not a lawyer, it, you can really I found that very hard to do because you do have that feeling that everyone is on that path and they're uh, they're agendas are completely full and their plans are full and their weekends are full and and their wallets are full and everything's full and they have that look and you're i found it incredibly alienating that's why i I had to move to brooklyn now and then all those people moved to brooklyn after me so you know
3: when i was their cup of misery is also full that's what you don't understand because they're also human.
0: Yeah. Well, here, no, but here here is some an experiment that can be very effective. And we were talking about how to get out of that whole thing about the drives making you crazy. Yeah. I find this sometimes it actually works. If you just put a smile on your face and then actually go out, <laughs> go out and just smile at people on that morning walk. It's much easier if you have a dog, yeah. but just actually smiling and greeting people and then having that feeling, kind trying to cultivate that feeling that you're not one of these. 21st century humans who's on this terrible uh escalator to nowhere, but instead, like you're an ape or you're a dog or you're you're a frog, which is, I mean, we are very similar to those things, forgetting all of the civilization and the jobs and the taxes. We are also just creatures. And if you can just try to engage on that level, and you really can do it, it's very simple. If you if you look someone in the eyes, you look a stranger in the eyes, not for too long, because you know that. Can feel threatening, but if you look the stranger in the eyes and smile, uh, you know you can actually try to tap into that. Just being a happy animal.
3: I'm glad you finally figured that out because that's just me, naturally.
0: Finally, that's so so obnoxious. (laughs) Finally,
3: I chat with people constantly. Smile at them.
0: Make Google. Uh, don't don't go chatting with them. That's creepy. I'm just talking about smiling. <laughs> no, no, I agree. Yeah, chatting with strangers. That dogs also. I always
3: chuck the dog under his chin, and uh, without, it, without consent, though. I've seen you without do that. consent. Yes, yeah. I've been bitten twice. I think.
0: Really? Yeah. yeah. You do want to get consent from the owner, and then you want to. Just let the dog sniff your hand that's the thing you don't want to reach for it
1: that's, okay let let me let me go back alone. let me let, let me go back to drives because you said something that resonated with me happiness is not being driven yeah our drives are the
3: source of being satisfied which can happen either because you fulfill the drive like you're hungry and then you Ate something, and then then you're happy, okay. or uh, if you find a way to manage your drives because drives are necessary, by the way. If you did not have a drive to eat, you would starve to death,
1: okay. A parent like so Ethan, you have a son who is obviously driven. I, I won't go over his resume, but he's pretty successful. If a parent came to you and said, I have a a son' He's happy, but he's not doing well in school, but he's happy. He's just not driven. He doesn't work. You know, he's a C student. He has friends, but he's happy. And I'm worried about him. What would you tell the parent? But he's happy. My kid is happy. (laughs) Meth. (laughs) Meth. Just a slight, not a lot, just a little
0: sprinkle it on the Cheerios.
1: (laughs) Just a little... What culturally there are certain cu- cultures, yes, where that's not okay. Where that's not okay, just to have a happy kid, right? I, I don't think I've said this. Uh, my mother and father never bragged that I was in love. They, my son is so happy.
3: They, Grandpa. they had nothing to brag about, David. <laughs>
1: Give them
0: something. So, no, you're right. Though there are, I mean, that would be that. Ha- that would be incredible. That would be incredibly enlightened. I know through. I know through someone. Uh, uh, just this is the, the the counter example to that. A New York parent whose kid has already been accepted to a college, and then the parents are basically grade grubbing on behalf of this kid to try to help him get into an even better college through this just driven, minor form of petty corruption, grade-grubbing, lobbying. I mean, it's the opposite of that. The message you're sending to a kid is, you're not good enough, you're probably not gonna be good enough. Without us, you're definitely not good enough. It's all a- varsity blues. Right, this was like miniature, this is like junior varsity blues. uh so anyway yeah the opposite would be to tell the kid that's great you got into a school that's great and and we're really happy for you and the key is that you're curious about something and you keep learning so but yeah that's a rare parent that uh
3: i have a friend who had a son <clears throat> and the son was a senior in high school and they were talking to a eminence Greece in psychoanalysis, a, a you know, a really older, respected woman. And they said, oh, yeah, um, so-and-so just got into this very good college. And she turned to the boy and said, you know, college is about
0: fucking. <laughs> wow. Wow.
1: <laughs> Who shared that story? The father of the boy told wow. me there's a great story about Tallulah Bankhead meeting the Marx brothers and Chico walked up to Tallulah Bankhead and said, after this party, I'm going to drag you into my car and fuck the hell out of you in the back seat." And she said, and so you shall, young man. And so you shall. <laughs> Okay
3: gentlemen I have to go teach a course now but you can carry on till midnight for all I
1: care. Thank you. This was whoa. He disappeared. Wow. That he's was not, He's not messing around. That was great. Yeah, that, that guy's on a that guy's on a schedule. Yeah. yeah. That was great. Ethan Hershenfeld, thank yeah. you for joining us. This thank was you. Uh, thank you. Was and fun. let's plug your book and are there any oh, yeah. gigs?
0: And let's plug a gig. Um yeah, so the book is Today is Now. Today is Now. Today is Now. And I want to plug this gig. Um, this is a terrific guy named Todd Montese, Uh, And Todd um, is a New York comedian. And I'm going to do his show on March 11th. I want to tell you about it. It's at a weird time of day in case it's like five in the afternoon. Um, hold on. I'm getting it. I'm pulling it up. This is the worst plug in history. Um, Todd, where where is your... There it is. It's called Ugg, comedy, Ugg, Ug Comedy. Ug U G. That's UG exclamation point.
1: How do you push plug Ug. You're plug Ugg.
0: Ugging. Plug plug Ugging. Todd Montesy. Um, the show is at a place called Secret Poor, like poor, Secret Poor. Right. On DeKalb Avenue. Oh my God, look at this. Sunday the 12th. I had the the date wrong. Sunday the 12th at 3 p.m. I mean, this is a crazy show. Right. Sunday the 12th. Of March at 3 p.m. in Bushwick come on come to Brooklyn it's to in March Irish comedy in March yeah March 13th
1: March 12th, March 12th.
0: yeah March. I have a big show this Saturday night but it's a private show it's at a, at a at a church in Queens so I'm doing a full 45 minutes so I've been pretty preoccupied I haven't done that long a set in quite a while
1: oh. yeah Okay. Well, have a good time. And how do people follow
0: you? What do they yeah. do? Uh, my website, EthanHershenfeld.com. Listen to me.
1: Right. You're a genius. Thanks, dude. You too. You are, no, no, you really are. You, you are. I listened. I got in the car and listened. And I'm going to give you the greatest compliment I possibly can. I was, You made me laugh so hard. I wished ill on you. That's how <laughs> funny you are.
0: Thank you. But, It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on, right? Buckle in.
1: Joining us is the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. For nearly a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Besides being an attorney and a member of the Supreme Court Bar. He is an ordained minister in the United Church of, and I hope I'm pronouncing this properly, Christ? You, you're really going back to I that got old a request. Joke. Somebody well, who re-
5: requested it. Dan. What is it? Dan requested.
1: Dan requested. It. He says it's. Where
5: been- does he live?
1: <laughs> Dan oh,
5: said. Okay. He says, yeah. No, it's I'm a good, good. It. joke. Is wearing a little <laughs> thin, but it's it's back it's been- now.
1: It's been two uh-huh. years since I did that joke. No. Yes, it has. I swore off it for Lent two years ago.
5: <laughs> That's good. That's yeah. a, it was a good thing to swear off of. Uh-huh. Uh, have you now become a Christian because it, it, the Jewish community does not celebrate Lent?
1: No, we I meant lent like I lent you money. Oh, I, I lent see. that <laughs> joke to somebody. Yeah. <laughs> interest. Have
5: you thought about writing anything for uh, Congressman Santos? Like if, specifically, if somebody like Mitt Romney comes up to you and says you don't belong here, I think Santos ought to have a better rejoinder than just standing there like an idiot. Yes, you could write this stuff.
1: I want to talk to you about the State of the Union. Yes. I was watching Chelsea Handler on The Daily Show, and she had the greatest joke, which was Marjorie Taylor Greene shouted, Liar. And George Santos said, I'm right over here. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I went, wow. That is well, a per- perfect joke. Is perfect it is perfect for what she's trying to do on a Late night talk show that's on at seven p.m. That (laughs) is, you cannot write a better joke for that medium than what she did. So I concur. Yeah, I concur. The State of the Union. Can I tell you what I thought? Of course. I thought that in terms of the being the great communicator, he did a great job. There are. Our healthcare system is a mess. I'm dealing with it. And I cannot believe how sinful it is, how we treat each other. And he's not pushing Medicare for all. Arctic, we're freezing to death. The eviction crisis has not been solved. Uh, but in terms of a television show, he put on a good television show, right? He did. It was a good show. He did.
5: Yeah, it was a good show. Might have been a little shorter, but they never are shorter. And I did. Th- I was very impressed by the fact that he was able to pick up on the heckling mm-hmm. and deal with it in in a pretty sophisticated fashion.
6: Yeah, yeah,
5: that was good. Seventy two percent of the people uh, watching it thought he did a good job, which is the highest rating. I ever remember, but only modern
1: president, only 72 people watched it. Yeah,
5: yeah, it did have a decline in attendance uh, over uh, last year when more people watched, significantly more people watched
1: the civility. Is there some virtue to the misbehaving and the heckling? You know, we watch it every week. Question time in Great Britain. I always think, wow, you have to be so much sharper to be the prime minister of England than the president of the United States we get we would get a better mind a sharper mind if we saw more heckling during yeah
5: well there's a little <clears throat> but in britain it's not heckling in the traditional sense i mean it really is asking tough questions of the prime minister like they do the same guy. thing yeah it's like a roast yeah. and it's a It may not be as funny, but I've seen some pretty terrible
2: roasts.
5: (laughs) But I do think um, I think he handled it very well. I think he did, in fact, convince people that he does want to run again. Yes, he does want to run again. I think he's preparing to make that announcement within the next few months just to make sure that Democrats stop sniping and start figuring out what they can do to promote the ideas that there are people who are fabulously wealthy, who pay very few taxes. I think one of the best lines in the whole thing was when he said he wanted the billionaire's tax, because no billionaire should pay a lower percentage of their, I think he said, uh, income, which is not quite, True, his plan's a little more complicated than that, but then does a firefighter or a school teacher. Right. And that ought to be such a profoundly important statement to make. But historically, going back decades, if you ask people about taxing the rich, they all say, um, Well, I'm not in favor of that because they in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, they believe that they or at least their children will all of a sudden be in the ranks of the wealthiest people in America. And then they or their kids might have to pay higher taxes. There's so little mobility between working class people and the wealthy that uh, it never happens. I mean, there are anecdotal pieces of evidence, but two anecdotes uh, do not, as as several people have said, uh, create a finding.
1: I want to ask you, before we talk about uh, House Republicans and the morning after pill, Mm -hmm. on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, we had Christopher, uh, Chris Hedges on the show, and he was I believe he has, he went to Harvard Divinity School. I think he's the son of a minister. I I don't know if. I, I think you're right. And so I get to ask one question per show. And they were talking about the Reverend Jeremiah Wright. Yep. And I asked him about the ministers, the reverends, the rabbis in America. Are they culpable for endless wars? and the income inequality. Where are the Jeremiah rights? Where are the Jeremiahs? Where are the prophets waving the Bible and telling Americans, you're going to burn in hell for allowing this? Are there ministers, rabbis, imams? Are there people saying, look, I mean, like, did you ever meet Jeremiah? Oh no,
5: I, I was on a committee with him when I worked, and he worked for the United Church of Christ. So,
1: yeah, I knew him reasonably he well. He worked for the United Church of yeah, Christ. Yeah,
5: he well he he was on the commission. It was called then the Commission for Racial Justice, and he was its director for a number of years.
1: Yeah, but he would not. He, what denomination would he be?
5: He was a United Church of Christ member of the clergy.
1: Oh, so that's where Obama worshipped.
5: Well, I don't know that he actually worshipped in that church that Jeremiah Wright was in in Chicago for a long time. But, but yes, we were. That was a a trifecta of irritants at the time. Of course, was uh, Jeremiah Wright and uh, Barack Obama and Barry Lynn.
1: Yeah. Yeah, mother, son, and holy,
5: holy ghost. Ghost. Oh my goodness, it's a ghost.
1: But it's and not so, a good, you know. So, so the the so his sermons, not God bless America, God damn America. Yep. If you listen to that sermon, it should be read in every school. <laughs> you know, they just took that one little. Sure. Snippet, sure. Uh, but he was saying in that sermon. What we do to countries overseas and to ourselves, not God bless America, God damn America. What is the role the ministry should be playing in screaming from the mountaintops Mm -hmm. about income inequality and endless wars?
5: Well, first of all, there are people that are doing that, but they never... You never see them on television. There I had a friend, I, I may have mentioned her before. She she used to run the Sex Information and Education Council of the United States, SICUS. Then she decided to become a Unitarian minister. And although she was frequently on shows, she was on the Today Show a lot, as soon as she became the Reverend, then wouldn't even invited her anymore. When I used to do Fox News with uh uh how quickly we forget the jerk that uh, Bill, was O'Reilly. Lufa, Bill O'Reilly every once in a while he would call all the time and then once our communications guy said, Barry wants to talk about the law and O'Reilly said, no, 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 we got enough lawyers. We want to talk to him because he's a minister and so you know I did that but but the people, you cannot get on. Think of the amount of time given even to uh, the few prominent African-American ministers out there who are making the case, except they don't conclude as you do, or maybe as Jerry Wright uh, did, that uh, you'll go to hell. Because most of us believe that's a concept that has little significance or meaning.
1: I have I, been thinking of just using my platform to tell Americans they're gonna burn in hell. Yeah. According to the scriptures, the Old Testament yeah. and the New Testament, if your rabbi isn't gonna tell you this, I will. You are going to burn in hell for this healthcare system. And I can't help it. When I'm on the phone, I'm helping someone with their health insurance. And it yeah. is an ongoing struggle. And I tell these yep. people, you're going to burn in hell. And I know it's wrong, but I, when I'm on the phone with Aetna and Blue Shield, I tell these people they're going to burn in hell.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think more people need to start directing that at the richest 1% and leave the transgender people alone. Leave, you, you know, you stop telling sure. Young men and women, they're going to burn in hell for masturbating and start telling healthcare executives they're going to burn in hell for killing hundreds of thousands of Americans each year in the name of mammon.
5: Yes, do not move out of a healthcare system that you are in and move, say, to Massachusetts. Now, as you know, and Many of the listeners know my wife is a doctor, and she's been on this show a number of times. But even there, to get appointments to see anyone has become a total nightmare. Yes, this and is if, you, going. If, yeah, yes. Well, if you yeah, if you give you one person, and that person is not someone you feel very good about, then you have to get another person. You have to switch. The programs—it's—it's it's unbelievable. And you're right. And come to think of it, I don't know if were you ever a Boy Scout. Uh, no, no. Well, you know, I've the been Boy Scouts
1: with older men. <laughs> <No>.
5: <laughs> hey, come on. Hey, it's something clear in the old versions of uh, of the Boy Scout Handbook. They did specifically since you're constantly going to issues of sex, masturbation was wrong. And you couldn't be a scout if you masturbated. And the I was learning popular... how to
1: tie a slip knot. That's all. Yeah. I think maybe, maybe Lane can tell. But didn't the founder of the Boy Scouts have a Horatio Alger problem? I don't know. You know, Horatio Alger was a child molester. Did you know yes. that? Yes,
5: I, I, I've heard that.
1: But I think. But here's. I,
5: what, I'm going to just finish about the. Oh, sorry. I, I'm gonna Ninety nine percent of Boy Scouts reading that. If they've asked the question, do you masturbate? Ninety nine percent would admit it and therefore be thrown out of the Boy Scouts. And the one percent who said I've never done it would be thrown out for lying. That was a statistic.
1: If I were if if I were a Boy Scout and they asked me if I masturbate, I'd say you should check the jamboree on my chest. (laughs) I don't think the Boy Scouts are. I, I just I don't approve of the Boy Scouts. So, no I
5: don't either but actually my son was a boy scout but we looked very hard to find a a troop where it was boy directed so that the young men there pretty much decided what to do and where they did not discriminate against people on the basis of religion or anything else and we did uh-huh. find we sexual. did find such a yeah. place. It's very rare.
1: Yeah. Uh so going back to the State of the Union, would would a would this country be better served with a scold from a president where you know we where, where people say things like the American people deserve better than this? And you have a president who says, No, I think you deserve exactly what we're giving you. Mm-hmm. You deserve this. Yeah,
5: I'm not sure that's exactly the way to go. But Mm -hmm. um, but no, I I get your point. And and he should have been a bit angrier than he was. There's no question about that. And I don't think it would have hurt him. And I think maybe 73 percent of people would hear it. He has to be able to say, you know, folks, you're wrong about so many things. The climate is in crisis. The healthcare system makes no sense. And to say it as bluntly as that and say, there are half of you that know I'm right, and the other half of you say, I'm wrong and I'm not. And here's why.
1: Yeah. By I mean, the way, I was at office hours Friday night. It turned into a bitch and moan session about the healthcare system. There was one guest who said she had to wait seven months to see a dermatologist. Seven months to see a dermatologist. Yep. I was thinking of doing a special office hours, maybe on a Saturday night, a town hall where we just listen to people complaining about the healthcare system and nobody offers any solutions. I, I, I found it very cathartic. To hear other people just describe what a nightmare our healthcare system is without solutions, without judgment, without saying, and this is why you need Medicare for all. Just to right. hear people describe what this healthcare system is like so we could bear witness to each other's suffering. What is the value in, in Christianity? to bearing witness to other people's suffering, Reverend.
5: Well, there's a huge theological debate about that because it's very easy to say, well, uh, they say suffering and then there are actually ministers who used to say, and if you're suffering, you should suffer more because then you'll be even more in need of the help of Jesus. I mean, It's primitive. It it is so difficult for me to even look at televised uh, sermons on the Internet, which I started doing, you know, during COVID, because so many of them are um, they're just. Incredible. They they they're pointless. They they say nothing, and they certainly don't help a person, whether that person is physically in the in the pews or watching on the internet. It, it's not helpful. It's just not helpful. I was on a, a webinar, I wasn't a participant in it, for something called Religion News Service, which really finally got to the point where. They convince major networks for a while and major newspapers to treat religion like they treat the economy, and that is to have people who know what they're talking about exploring this phenomenon, which is a incredible significance to a huge number of people. And whether you believe religion is a good thing or you believe as Christopher Hitchens did that it's a terrible thing, an evil thing, you should be able to explore that with at least the depth of financial analysts on CNBC or the Wall Street Journal. Right. And there was a very important figure, and i uh, he, he's in my book, we'll get to my book sometime, okay. uh, But named David Anderson. He worked for United Press International. When United Press International started to fire lots and lots of people, he moved over to Religion News Service. And when he retired in 2004 to go out and live in s- s- rural Montana, uh everybody that said something about him said dave anderson was the person who convinced major papers and television and radio to talk about religion in a serious way not not just have you know there used to be a requirement it's not really there anymore that there was for licensees of radio and television stations an obligation to deal with issues of public concern part of it was the so-called fairness doctrine which was not much of a burden it didn't say you had to you know mix match uh, every single thing being said by one person with somebody else but mm-hmm. uh, but it did it did make television interested in pursuing some issues and to do so even with The clergy and other uh, people with ethical interests, uh, usually on Sunday mornings. And there were great conversations on some of those shows. I mean, I remember doing one with uh, the late John Conyers, uh, who, of course, was an African-American congressman from Detroit. And we were talking about some military issues. And relating to the Jimmy Carter pardon. And uh, they tried to get somebody who would disagree with us. We, We were in complete agreement, but they couldn't get anybody. They don't have to get somebody to do that. But it made a difference. And it also showed people that on a Sunday morning, you could watch at that time, the Billy Graham Hour. You could watch. But you also could see people who were expressing some of these deep concerns about the direction of the country and the way in which we can be better people, that we can do the right thing instead of the wrong thing. But those are those shows are all, I think, off the air. I don't Mm -hmm. know of any place that has them.
1: Let's talk about the morning after pill, and then we'll talk about what the Republicans should be investigating.
5: Yeah, well, the morning after pill, what, what I want to mention. Morning, what, what, what is I, the
1: morning after pill?
5: It's um, it, it's actually two pills. Mephapristone is the first one. And you have to take that along with another pill, which I name eludes me at the moment. But once you do that, is very, this is a very safe pharmaceutical. It's been examined for thirty years, and um, it's got no serious side effects for virtually nothing. That I mean, every pill has some idiosyncratic downside. But once the decision in Hobbes was made, and we no longer have Roe versus Wade uh, on the books, people now started to think, well, what are the implications of the reasoning of Roe versus Wade? And of course, the reasoning, such as it was, of the majority of that court was that the whole thing was wrong-headed from the start because there is no constitutional right to privacy. The long range goal of the religious right is not just to do away with abortions, but to do away with contraception. And because it's based on exactly the same arguments that were you know, taken by my friend Bill Baird in the contraceptive and then moved into the abortion issue. Is that true, though,
1: it. they really do, if you ask oh. Judge Thomas, is this Griswold? Does that be
5: Yes. Well, Griswold was the one that said you couldn't. Uh, Connecticut had a law that even married couples could not obtain uh, abortions. and But the more difficult one was the one that Bill Baird himself brought. And uh, that was a question of would could unmarried people have access to to contraception that was a tougher case but he won that case and then he subsequently won a case on um on uh, access to abortion for minors without parental consent because yeah, a lot of i'm
1: thinking of a joke republicans would be against abortion for <laughs> <per, it's, clears throat> the punchline is except in the case of marital rape but I don't know what the setup is.
5: Yeah, but I don't know either. Except in the case of marital the,
1: rape will make it doesn't it.
5: sound like a great. We should t- actually talk to Bill Bear. He's, He's ninety. Been on the show. Yes. Oh, with me? Yes, yes. he was. That's correct. Yes. yes. Well, and but Christina Page is this woman who wrote a wonderful book about a decade ago about how the. The Women's Movement Saved America. And her argument was, we know they're against abortion, but look at this. The evidence is mounting that they are against contraception as well. And, you know, I I interviewed her when I was doing radio a couple of times. But um, before you get to that, the right to life people who write to some life people, have another brilliant idea. We're not going to take away contraception yet, but we are going to try to make it illegal to prescribe or to transfer uh, through the mails the morning after pill. So what did they do? They went this is the worst example of forum shopping I've ever seen. This is you want to find a a judge that you think is going to be on your side. So. So a group called the uh First Liberty Institute which is out of Texas um
1: sounds uh, nice left wing something it, it's nice
5: it. and right wing yes First First Liberty is the liberty to take care of uh so it's run by a guy that I used to have frequent run-ins with and so here's what happened so he decides that they should move this case claiming that it's unconstitutional to prescribe this FDA approved drug. It's unconstitutional because the Federal Food and Drug Administration made a mistake. So where do they go? They go to um, the Northern District of Texas, which has a single judge at the moment, who used to work for the first Liberty Institute. He Hmm. was their general counsel. Now he's a judge that they have picked. And this is a guy who believes that if he makes a judgment and he's done some bad things in immigration context, it will be applied and should be applied to the entire country. Now, that sounds horrible. It's also about um, (laughs) what do you do? If it goes and immediately to an appeal in the Fifth Circuit, which is, covers, of course, Oklahoma and Texas and a bunch of other red states. And the answer is they pretty much uphold anything that hurts American women mm-hmm. or hurts immigrants. So then they absolutely then they'd have to take an emergency appeal to the Supreme Court. And I'm not sure that they would do that. I'm not sure the court's looking to do that maybe next year or the year after that. But I don't think they're looking to say, oh, yeah. And by the way, this FDA approved drug, um, you can't get that either. You can't prescribe it and you can't send it in the mail. That's how nutty these people are. They do not care. You can with the exception of our friend uh, rob shank who's i had on the show too they haven't changed their mind they dig in they dig in he's a pariah now even though he was literally one of the top leaders of the anti choice movement in america right. and you know after he did the show and of course he he got he a lot huge of
1: a, huge he became a huge show. he huge. testified Before
5: the Judiciary Committee and basically said, I was setting up meetings between Supreme Court justices and huge Republican donors. And then he also said that he had been given information about the result in the Hobby Lobby case before it was out there. And the court, of course, said that's nonsense. And the Republicans said it was nonsense.
1: But what does that mean? I mean, you're a member of the Supreme Court bar. I've been led to believe that you cannot lobby the Supreme Court. Can you lobby the Supreme Court? Can you?
5: No, you lobby them by filing friend of the court briefs, amicus briefs. Uh, You can have protests outside of the court.
1: You can invite. I mean, I know the Koch brothers invites. Them to speak oh, at events and
5: absolutely, they, oh no, yeah. there's plenty of that going on. And but but if you ask the club for growth or one of these right wing religious groups that also tends to invite uh uh p- people like Clarence Thomas, um, they will say he's just talking to us, he's
1: just talking to us, and we don't know what speaking fees they're getting paid,
5: right? I don't think they get speaking fees for that because they get a lot of extra income. In the summer months and on into early September, before the court is back in session, and there they can go and raise a huge amount of money as a visiting professor uh, somewhere. Often, not even in the. They don't have to do
1: financial disclosure.
5: No, they do not. They they apparently are discussing over the last few months some kind of potential uh, code of ethics for. Supreme Court justices, but the last time somebody that knows something about it uh talked to me said there's just nowhere close to coming up with a solution
1: wasn't h r one wasn't Nancy Pelosi's first bill in the two thousand in the hundred and seventeenth hundred and eighteen hundred and sixteenth Congress I
5: believe that yeah she she did and um you know of course it passed the house but um you know it's it is very difficult to convince people that um that they should have a hand in discussing or regulating the conduct of another branch of government i mean because they they don't want they certainly don't want the court telling them that much of anything that they, they do, do is unconstitutional. But and then of course the presidents in the past uh, have gotten away with virtually everything because the court doesn't step in or mm-hmm. doesn't in the last 25 years. So that's bad. But all they're gonna
1: the, it, all I the mean, problems. Yeah. This century has, mm-hmm. As I get older, and maybe I listen to Ralph Nader, all the solutions are in the capital that that the 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 people who have appropriated our government want us to believe that nothing gets done in Washington DC and that's anything but the truth this government Washington DC works perfectly fine for the people who've taken it over and exactly if, if you control Washington DC you control everything what, I, I did the numbers. I think Washington is one third of our economy. What Washington spends is 33% I, of it, the I don't
5: know. It sounds that sounds a little high to me.
1: When you factor in, maybe it's including state and local, but yeah, uh, that
5: could be. That but it's um
1: if you these control are things. government, you control the future. And I and you know, I love well, people I, on the left. I do. I'm a leftist. Yep. Yeah, yeah. But you got to take over the government. Of course you do.
5: But, you know, there were plenty of people who would characterize themselves as progressive who don't even want to expand the size of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, talk about who's in real charge. It is the Supreme Court. Biden wants to do not enough, in my view, but wanted to do something about student loan debt. That's now before the court. I think it's Incomprehensible that they will allow him to continue that program. They've heard arguments. They'll make a decision uh, probably in the late spring. But you control the court, you control everything. Even if they were to try to expand the court, there would be people coming up with so called constitutional reasons why the expansion was not permitted. They have no knowledge. They have no moral center, with the exception of, you know, the three people who uh, who vote the correct way on all of these social issues and all of these administrative issues. But you have got to do something. We have got to expand this court. And we have to give voting rights to the District of Columbia. There's 712,000 people. I think there two fewer since we moved, but um, that's... It's reprehensible that these people are called on as citizens of the country to serve in the military, to do, to pay taxes, and they don't get any representation that's meaningful. I mean, God love her. I, I, I love Eleanor Holmes Norton, I've known her for decades, but you know, she doesn't even get a vote on the House floor. We have that's no amazing. senators. We have no senators in Washington. There would be two Democrats. That's true. But, you know, so be it. That's what is the thinking
1: that D.C. doesn't need uh, representation? It, it, it's run by the federal government. Is that the idea?
5: Yeah, That well, that's one of the arguments used, but it's not. It's just not persuasive. I mean, you got got uh, Wyoming has fewer people, um, uh, I think. Uh, I think Idaho has fewer people also. There are two other states that have fewer actual people living there than live in the District of Columbia. And it's talk about diversity. I mean, this is just in the neighborhood we left. I mean, this was uh, it was set up as an African-American kind of enclave in northwest Washington. It it has lots of gay people, Hispanic people, Asian people and. That is a great example within the city of Washington, D.C., of the diversity that is throughout that city. And um, so that's so we got to do those. You have to do something that is that makes it clear that if you pay taxes and your kids are supposed to be serving in the military, that you damn well better get an actual representative and an actual two senators, just like Wyoming has two senators. There's no
1: excuse. We have veterans who were not citizens who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. They come back and they're still not given their citizenship.
5: That's right. No, that's absolutely right. Well, you know.
1: Let's talk about uh, what the House Republicans should really be looking at. Yeah,
5: well. The House Republicans, I think, made a complete ass out of themselves yesterday when they were talking about Hunter Biden's laptop. Now, I actually think I thought that there probably was in Hunter Biden's laptop, very damaging information. So the Republicans have been looking at all of the leaks and the hints and the evidence that uh, they got from Elon Musk. They've been doing this for a year And I thought they would really have something to crow about during the during the hearing earlier in this week. And they had nothing. I mean, he literally had nothing. There was no smoking gun. The only connection which they claimed that they would be able to make between government law enforcement agencies and uh, Twitter was one example, the only example they gave that has any meaning. Apparently, someone in the Justice Department, probably working on behalf of uh, the people, including the president, said that there were certain pornographic images on Hunter Biden's laptop. They were being circulated, and somebody went to Twitter and said, this is an invasion of privacy the guy doesn't want this take it down and they did but everything else the every they had nothing and in fact the witnesses including Matt Taibbi who you know writes for Rolling Stone and a couple of months ago I had this big splash one saturday morning where he said he you know he had looked at some of the uh, stuff that Elon Musk was Indicating it happened to Twitter. But even he couldn't bring himself to honestly say under oath that he knew that there was anything that I thought might be there, like um, connections between Hunter Biden and his father's foreign policy decision making.
1: Right. Nothing. Nothing. Okay. Let me ask you some legal questions because you are, in fact, a member of the Supreme Court bar. There is a laptop that is left by a crack addict at a repair shop 30 days. If you leave it there for 30 days, you no longer own it. It, Right. Okay. If you're a crack addict, would a judge with the proper lawyering rule in your favor and say, no, he was disabled. He couldn't pick up the laptop this uh, yeah. Adhesion clause does not apply. It's still Hunter Biden's laptop.
5: Yes, I think you could make a credible
1: argument about that. OK. Yeah. If if it no longer belongs to Hunter Biden mm-hmm. and you are the owner of the computer repair shop and according to the contract, you now own his computer, is it legal for you to go through the contents of that hard drive, or are you legally obligated to wipe it clean and then either try to sell it or use it for yourself? Are you allowed to go through a hard drive that belongs to a customer?
5: Yes, I think you
1: are. You are allowed to search somebody's...
5: Yeah, because you're not... Remember, at that point, you're not a law enforcement official. There's no constitutional claim that could be raised about you uh, violating uh, some principle of search and seizure because it's just a guy in a computer store. And I think he can do pretty much anything he wants with with with
1: the right lawyering. Is it with
5: the right lawyering?
1: With with the right lawyering. Could Hunter Biden's attorneys claim that this was an invasion of his privacy, that that uh, there are laws, statutes that protect people's privacy, and that he was legally obligated. Could an argument be made that the owner of that repair shop was legally obligated to wipe it clean and not invade Hunter Biden's privacy?
5: Yeah, I don't think that the I don't I think it'd be a stretch to say what he exactly couldn't do. But if you wanted to make the argument that it was still Hunter Biden's because he was physically incapable of retrieving it. Yes, that's a good lawyerly thing. He has a lot of lawyers working for him now. And I imagine that this is one of many things they will seek to do.
1: Then this repair computer repairman has a hard drive, and he thinks he's seen a crime on the hard drive. If he goes to the police, the police have, uh, what is it called, reasonable suspicion now Mm -hmm. to get a a judge to say, okay, the police can now, the, the judge says, yes, here's a warrant, search this hard drive, correct?
5: Yeah, you have to go and get a warrant.
1: You have to go get a warrant. Yes. And, it and then they fine. can look at it. Right. Law enforcement can look the, at it. The exclusionary rule, which has gotten weaker yep. over the years, is a Fourth Amendment guarantee that the police cannot enter into evidence. The the what is it? The, the forbidden fruits fruit. of a poisonous, poisonous tree. tree. Yeah. Does that still apply
5: Oh, absolutely, but you're right. It's been weakened, but I think in this case, that you you could certainly find judges who would say um, this was illegally obtained. That's the poison tree part, and therefore anything on that hard drive cannot be admitted as evidence of a crime. Yes, I believe that you would find judges who would rule
1: that way if there were. There was a crime on that laptop and it was handed over to Rudy Giuliani. And he made a decision to bring it to the New York Post instead of the police. Is he an accessory after the fact? If there is a crime on that laptop and he didn't report it to the FBI and instead took it to the New York Post, to have them publish it. Uh, Is he an accessory after the fact for not reporting it? Is he did he contaminate the chain of custody?
5: Well, there is this chain of custody. You have to be able to demonstrate that law enforcement that received something that's going to be used as evidence in a criminal trial, that the custody has been preserved in every step of the process. So in This analysis that you've just done, yes, I think he would he was under no obligation necessarily to report this to the police. But but I think a good lawyer would say, well, what you know, he he didn't look at it. Do we know? I don't think we know that Rudy Giuliani actually opened the contents of hundred so bottles. It's, it's,
1: it's murky. I, I at the top yeah. of the show. I this is what I talk about. I just sure. want to run some of this stuff past you because I'm appalled that this isn't a conversation. I think uh, Goldman, who sits on the oversight committee, did a pretty good job. Yep. Uh, explaining the murkiness. Correct. Of the investigation, and it's that was one of the most underreported because you had the theatrics of. Sure. Uh, you know, no. But real law was not discussed. And as I pointed out, if this is so important, why wasn't Rudy Giuliani testifying? Why wasn't Steve Bannon, who was also involved right. in the appropriation of that hard drive, <laughs> why wasn't he testifying before Congress? This isn't about no anything other than serving Donald Trump and throwing dirt into everybody's faces. Yeah.
5: I mean, Rudy Giuliani, to the extent that he's making any sense at all anymore, um, he could have said, look, um, I I'm a lawyer and I'm a lawyer for Donald Trump. And all I was doing was examining this hard drive to determine if there would be anything of value to my client. I think that's a stretch of the claim of uh, privilege that might exist between Trump and Giuliani. But it's not incredible to make such an argument.
1: Could an argument be made that uh, the hard drive was a a campaign contribution in kind? (laughs) An in kind
5: contribution. (laughs) Yeah, it's possible. But I I think that would be stretching it to the point of.
1: uh, I should have been a bad lawyer. Yeah, well, back, you, I should have been a bad lawyer.
5: You should have been a bad, but you, be, as I've said to you many times, you'd be you could be a bad preacher and get all the financial benefits right. that accrue to that. Here's what there they are should do. So me
1: things I could have been bad at. Well, <laughs> <laughs> hey. Be, I want
5: to talk next week. I want to okay. talk about what they should be investigating cuz it's going to take a few minutes so we're not we're kind of out of time. How's the book coming? The book is very close to publication. They are intending to publish it on April Fools' Day and uh, that's not a joke. It's April Fools' Day. Um and I expect to have within 2 weeks all the information about how you can get it um and how you can Download it uh, if you have a Kindle or something. But but we are is, is seriously considering not not publishing it through Amazon. I mean, not even selling it because of their horrendous uh, right. anti-union busting activities. So this is a very, very honest uh, uh, independent press called Blue Cedar Press. It's out in Kansas. And uh, so it's coming. It's three volumes, paid to piss people off. Volume one is peace. Volume two is porn. Volume three is prayer.
1: The three Ps.
5: The three Ps.
1: It sounds like me in the middle of the night. (laughs) Rick, and next week we will answer a theological question from our listener, Rick Can Jesus microwave a burrito so hot? That he himself cannot eat it. We'll answer that next week.
5: It's a good but question. I'll think it? about ponder it. And when I wake up in the middle of the night, I'll think of nothing but how I need to help Rick resolve yeah. that question.
1: Listen, I'm just grateful that I'm waking up in the middle of the night to pee. <laughs> Eventually, you get to a point where you don't wake up in the middle of the night to pee. That's true. So, Very true. Stay on the trouble, Reverend. Great job. All right, Only good trouble.
5: It's the only thing I get into.
0: It's time right now for the
4: David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right. Buckle in real time.
1: Time for the professors and Marianne. Professor Marianne Cummings is a particle physicist, as well as parks commissioner in Aurora, Illinois. Professor Jonathan Bick teaches The Twilight Zone and Star Trek and now Columbo. At office hours, we'll go over that calendar later. And Professor Adnan Hussein is chairman of the religion department over at the University, Queens University in Kingston, Ontario, and co-hosts Guerrilla History and the Mudgeless Podcast. We'll ask you who is uh, on that shortly. I'm going to call an audible because we need to talk about Turkey and Syria. because it is so sad uh i feel we should ease into it i'm gonna let's on a cheerful note let's start with joe in norway who does asmr for the eyeballs what do you have before us
2: hey david good to see
1: you Uh, we're in
2: the uh the heart of winter and we've got uh Incredible winds and cold going on right now. So I thought I'd make a hearty, spicy stew, maybe a Korean style, with uh, tofu, some vegetables. I'll also be making some sweet rice, glutinous rice. So steam that. And then some kind of quick pickled salad
1: to go with Mm. it. I can't wait. I have to warn you, I have not done defensive eating before this. So... (laughs) Uh, let's go to Professor Bick first to talk about the State of the Union. We'll ease into it. Here's something I noticed that I have never seen a president of the United States say during a State of the Union. I don't think I've heard anybody talk about jobs that don't require a college education. Did anybody find that shocking? That during the State of the Union, I think he said it three times. These are good paying jobs that don't require a college education. And I thought, all right, I'm not a Biden fan. And this is just a television show. The State of the Union is just theatrics. But that was nice to hear. Anybody want to comment on that before we dig into the specifics about a president of the United States talking about Good jobs that don't require a college education. What's
7: what flipped that switch? Okay. Well, that's pretty much what I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, okay. Uh, So, um, as most people know, on Tuesday evening, uh, President Biden gave a uh, State of the Union address, uh, which he is constitutionally obligated to do uh, every year. And uh, He uh, focused, uh, I'd say, primarily on economic issues and less so on cultural issues. I don't think he mentioned transgender rights, for example. Uh, And he he seems to be attempting to draw working class uh, voters back into the Democratic Party. And uh, the Democratic Party, you know, from the 1930s to let's be generous and say then up to the 1980s. So for half a century or so uh, was you could say they were squarely on the side of working class Americans and unions and unions. Yes. Run by unions sort of. Yeah, they had unions had a, a significant say in the Democratic Party. Uh, Republicans really since the 1880s. Uh, have been associated with uh, the cause of big business and the wealthy. Uh, Biden and the Democrats want to win back uh, working class voters through the creation of hundreds of thousands of well-paid jobs that do not require a college degree. Uh, Biden said, let's offer every American the path to a good career, whether they go to college or not. And as you said, he he mentioned these types of jobs without needing a college degree a number of times. And I I think, you know, one of the reasons for this is because the Democrats are starting to realize that um, going after only the college educated uh, is is a losing path uh, to getting majorities in in Congress uh, or to getting a president elected, for that matter, Um, because most Americans don't have a college degree. Is that true? That's the what? Yeah, I think it's, uh, let's see, I, I have it later in, the, in my okay. uh, talk. Uh, so the last Congress passed a, a trillion dollar infrastructure bill, a uh, 280 billion dollar measure to rekindle domestic uh, semiconductor industry which some people have criticized probably rightly as a giveaway to that industry but nonetheless uh and the inflation reduction act which included 370 billion dollars for low emission energy to combat climate change so all of these programs have within them the potential for to create these t- types of jobs, uh, you know, building infrastructure and so forth. that don't necessarily require a college degree. Um, I would say, however, that Democrats seem to overlook the fact that it's not just that working class people want uh, uh, jobs. They want good paying jobs that allow them to live decent, stable lives and offer their children a chance to do better than they have. I mean, that's part of what's called the american dream right uh that your children are going to do better than you are and that doesn't seem to be happening uh these days so what's missing from work uh is really the quality of the job time off vacation reasonable working hours good working conditions re- respect and dignity uh for the worker that seems to be missing uh you, you know we have a lot of jobs at the moment but we uh, we don't have those types of jobs uh, much of the time. So for for decades, uh, the Democratic Party has been abandoning the concerns of the working class and appealing to the college educated. Um, considering that, you know, most Americans don't have a four year degree. That's not the best strategy. Um, and they're in debt. And they're in debt to get those degrees. Right. Right. That's a newer phenomenon. Uh, Another mistake uh, by Democrats and Republicans. But, you know, so about two thirds of eligible voters do do not have four year college degrees. Two thirds. Wow. Uh, And over that,
1: I I did not know that
7: two thirds of eligible voters do not have a four year college degree or better. Yeah. Uh, Democrats have lost ground. Uh, over the last uh, decade, even among those with the 40 year degree or better. Um, in 2020, uh, Biden won 61% of college graduates, but only 45% of voters without a four year college degree. And just 33% of white voters without a four year degree. <laughs> In a New York Times Siena College poll that was conducted uh, in September before the last um, election, 59 percent of white working class voters said Republicans were the party of the working class. 59 percent of white working class voters compared with 28 percent who said the Democrats were.
1: Can I respond to that for a second? Yeah. If you have these hyper-credentialed professional managerial class holes in the Democratic Party, constantly saying the solution is education, 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 and you don't have a formal education, you're going to think, and almost rightfully so, that the Republican Party is, there's more of a home for me, that they look down on me in the Democratic Party, because I didn't go into $100,000 debt to get a college degree.
7: It makes sense. Well, it makes sense in that the Republicans are seen as the only other choice to the Democrats because we have a two party system that really strangles the idea of democracy. We don't have a lot of choice when it comes to who to elect. Uh, but it's almost blaming. I, I'm sorry to
1: interrupt, but it is almost like blaming the victim. That's what the Clintons and the Obamas do. They blame oh, I, the America. You don't you didn't work hard enough in school. Uh, you didn't get the degree.
7: So you lose. And
1: the Republicans don't say that
7: it was a terrible strategy. I agree with you 100 uh, percent. But the idea that the Republican Party is the party of the working class is nonetheless ludicrous. Uh, Republicans have always opposed unions and they've been instrumental in reducing unionization in this country from about a third of the private workforce down to about six percent. Uh, this has been devastating for the working class in terms of working conditions, wages, job stability, and benefits, and the power they have in the market, in in the job market that is, and uh, you know whatever say they have in the workplace has been annihilated because they're not in a union. But as you rightly point out, the Democratic Party uh had the only positive thing they've really provided unions and working people is rhetoric and small highly targeted policies that are not changing the power dynamic between employers and employees democrats have promised for decades to help unions make it easier for unionization to occur clinton did this obama did this biden did this but they just promised that they never delivered on it
1: and union membership, all time lower, the lowest in 100 years. We keep hearing about Starbucks. We keep hearing about Amazon. Union membership continues to drop.
7: Yes. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, 68 uh, percent of the voter of the uh, the white working class voters said that they agreed more with Republicans than Democrats on the economy, well, just twenty-five percent said the Democrats. They agreed with the Democrats more. Uh, beyond economics, white working-class voters sided overwhelmingly with Republicans on building a border wall, opposing gun control, stopping illegal immigration, and seeing gender as an immutable and determined and determined at birth. So let's take a look at those four issues. Right, only one of those could possibly. Result in an improvement in employment prospects or an improvement in, in in their economic situation. Maybe you could argue that reducing illegal immigration could, you know, make it uh, better for them in terms of not lowering wages for jobs that they may perf- be pursuing or, you know, losing out to uh, someone who is here without proper documentation getting a job. Uh, but the other three issues will not result in an improvement to the working class's economic situation in any way. Bo- uh, building a border wall, it won't even do what it's supposedly said it's going to do. Uh, you know, most people come here and overstay their visa. That's how they end up here, quote unquote, illegally. Opposing gun, <clears throat> gun control, that has nothing to do with economics uh, of the working class. and. Um, G- the gender issues and transgender issues, again, not relevant to the working class's economic situation, unless they happen to be transgender. Um, so they're looking at the wrong things. They're being distracted by the Republican Party and and these types of issues. Uh, you know, and, and Democrats have problems not only with the working class, but. um uh, I'm I'm sorry. Uh, the, the, the democratic problems with the working class are not limited to white voters. Some blue collar, black, Latino, and Asian American voters have drifted toward the Republicans recently, uh, and so Biden rolled out uh, a number of uh, economic uh, programs aimed at these people uh, who are more sensitive to rising prices. So he talked about uh, lowering insulin costs. Uh he talked about getting rid of junk fees, such as exorbitant bank overdraft charges, credit card late fees, uh hotel junk fees, and, and, and cable junk fees, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, which is fine. Uh okay, but that's even if you did that, it's not going to change the economic position of the working class. Uh, I'm all for those things, but it's small potatoes and the big scheme of things. Now, what do the Republicans want to cut? I was very happy that Biden came out and said, we're not going to cut Social Security or Medicare. And he said to the Republicans, uh, do you agree with that? Stand up if you agree you know, that we're not going to cut Social Security. Because he said that some Republicans were proposing that, which they were. Uh, Rick Scott of Florida, uh, um, what's this guy from Utah? Uh, Romney, Romney came, you know, with this plan for a blue ribbon commission in order to cut the deficit, etc. Um, and clearly that's what he has in mind. Um, so, but the Republicans were like, oh, no, us, we wouldn't do that. Uh, so he got them to stand up and say they weren't going to advocate for cutting those. OK, well, what do they what do they want to cut? Now, yesterday, the Republicans on the House Budget Committee gave us a preview. Uh, and this is part of a deal to raise the debt ceiling. They want to cut food aid for low income families, which is already meager. Right. Uh, we don't we, we don't. <laughs> people in need in this country still have to go to food banks, even if they get food aid from the government. Uh, climate justice, they want to take money away from that. Electric vehicle funding and incentives, they want to cut that. Student debt relief, that's the big one that they want to go after. And the Affordable Care Act subsidies, they want to cut those way back. So they want to cut health care. They want to make it harder for uh, students to get a college education or uh, a vocational education. Uh, they want to make it uh, harder to do anything about global warming. And they want to cut back on food aid for desperate people. That's what they want to do. So they those that's about $780 billion in proposed spending cuts, nearly half of which would come from revising President Biden's student debt cancellation, a plan, as you mentioned earlier, uh, that is currently blocked pending a decision from the Supreme Court. Uh, But, you know, cutting, uh, saying we're not going to forgive uh, a a small amount of student debt is not going to result in that debt being paid necessarily, because there are going to be a lot of defaults. Students have not been paying interest or principal on these loans. Uh, for a few years now, and to say all of a sudden, oh, you have to pay everything now—that's <laughs> uh, going to put a lot of people into default, and those loans aren't a portion of those loans are not going to be paid back anyway. So it's not really saving money. And in the case of uh, cutting back on the Affordable Care Act subsidies, first of all, I I want Medicare plus for all, right? I want a national health care system that gets rid of deductibles co-pays and all this uh but if if we can't have that right now and we have a subsidized obamacare then uh we should keep the subsidies in place they want to reduce the subsidies uh to people that are at 400 of the federal poverty line or lower um which would hurt a lot of middle income people that pay for coverage. So for example, a 60 year old man making $55,000 this year pays eight and a half percent of his income on a silver plan without the subsidies. He'd pay over 20% of his income, 20% of your income just for health insurance premiums. That's a lot. So that's what, those are the people they want to hurt. The poor, the middle class and the working class. That's that's the uh, Republican Party uh, friend of the working class for you.
1: Yep, that's what I've got. Yeah. Great. Great job. Uh, Anybody want to respond to that?
4: Yeah. Terrible. Like the Democrats had an excellent opportunity to push as hard to the left or I I would say to the correct position that would help most Americans when they had all the power for the last two years and they refuse. So everything Professor John has just gone through is absolutely true of the the Republican Party, completely enabled by the Democratic Party. When the Democratic Party keeps pushing the left word allowed parameters of these discussions, they've pushed off Medicare for All there was no mention of even like a public option. Um, yes, they subsidized uh, Obamacare, but you know, I saw my deductibles go up to a point where, you know, you just unless I would only go to a hospital unless when if I was completely unconscious. That's kind of the situation I find myself in.
1: Yeah, it's unconscious. And it's
4: like. It's so, you know, all these things, yeah, Republicans, bad, bad, bad. And the Democrats are almost, at least the Democratic leadership is secretly on board with all this stuff. Let's take Social Security. I mean, uh, not to mention that Biden has been forecutting Social Security all of his political life. I mean, he, he appointed to the Social Security Oversight Board, this guy, I think his name was Bix a guy that is a lifelong and if you can go to the lever uh, that's uh Davis Rhoda's uh, publication and he is uh, he will tell you everything about this guy um a vocal critic of expanded social security and workers rights and he has dismissed the retirement crisis quote as a non issue <laughs> and recently as 2020 blamed problems with social security on quote older americans game of chicken that's not like it. Colorful, yeah, what does that mean?
1: Like living longer? With yeah, well, money? that
4: basically uh, they're saying that uh, maybe he's implying that older people are are almost blackmailing politicians. You take away our social security and we won't vote for you kind of thing. All right. Uh, well, two decades what, what, ago, they worked on Bush administration commission that pushed to privatize social security. And we know what Monica Lewinsky scandal prevented. So go ahead, hey David.
1: Well, let's talk about the weaponization of the government there. Jim Jordan is chairing hearings Mm -hmm. about how the FBI has been weaponized. Mm -hmm. So how have uh, I guess he's going to get to the bottom of the persecution of Muslims by the FBI?
4: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Although I will say, you know, why don't we hear a coherent outcry? There are. Democrats on this board, we should be hearing something from them about this issue.
1: Well, tell me what's going on with the FBI.
4: Okay, so what's going on with the FBI is that um it turns out that there was uh in Denver, there was a coalition, Black Lives Matter and other racial justice coalitions that were um that were getting together protesting, yeah, you know, like everything everyone else was that summer. Um And this group, though, had a particularly interesting member. His name is Windecker. Let's see if I can get up this. Um, Turns out this guy Windecker was a paid informant by the FBI, was paid to start encouraging members of this Denver coalition to act up and, you know, file intelligence reports and try to get dirt on some of the activists that they were uh, that they were targeting. And it turns out the FBI was targeting hundreds and hundreds of activists of Black Lives Matter people all through the summer and fall of, uh, of 2020. But, um, and by the way, if you want to read about this in, in full detail, um, person that's been on the show, uh, Trevor, Ar- Trevor Aronson of The Intercept, he was the one that has uh, covered the FBI, FBI's Counterterrorism uh, uh, program that targeted uh, isolated, mostly mentally troubled young Muslims and, tr- and tried to entrap them in schemes that FBI informants themselves made up. <laughs> that sound familiar? Same with the, uh, the the guys that were plotting to uh, kidnap Whitmore. The, the plan was actually hatched by by FBI informants. And they managed to finally nail the ringleader, who the court even uh, and, and the prosecution even admitted was a mentally ill person. So, but this time it was a little different. Okay, so I guess as I said before, FBI has got to check off those affirmative action check boxes and, and go back to what they really want to do: is go after African Americans and their allies organizing you know on behalf against police violence now this is nothing new but there was an interesting um th- there was an interesting quote um from from the FBI the one of the uh secretary or uh, the uh, assistant director of the FBI and and he thought in his i'm trying to look for the quote right now but he regarded all the black lives matter protests as another 911. Really, he thought he regarded that the you know
1: 911.
4: Right, the 911, uh, this was another 911 December 1th. Assault, assault on, you know, America. <laughs> it's, and that's the way, that's how we regarded all the the uh, largely spontaneous, but very well organized and might I add, Very peaceful,
1: very peaceful,
4: very peaceful demonstrations. So here it is. As protests broke out in cities like Minneapolis, Denver, Portland, Oregon and all over the FBI's second in command, David Bowditch, compared the demonstrations to the 9-11 attacks. When 9-11 occurred, this is his quote, our folks did not quibble about whether there was danger ahead for them. Bowditch wrote in a memo first obtained by The New York Times. They ran head on into peril. Bowditch describes the racial justice demonstrations throughout the country as "quote a national crisis," unquote, whose "quote violent protesters," unquote, were highly organized. <laughs> really, so um, in rushes this guy. This uh, Windecker is actually a white guy. He act, when I was reading this article, looking at uh, uh, looking at his pictures. Online, I'm going. God, he reminded me of the guy who was at Sean Decker, Tanya Harding's Tanya Harding's oh bodyguard, because he claimed to be like, you know, he was a veteran of the French Foreign Legion and worked with the Peshmerga and was in Iraq. Well, apparently, he actually was in Iraq, but even when his when when his uh, fellow. Uh, soldiers were were interviewed, they said, yeah, that guy is, you know, kind of a real jerk and is really filled with himself. And so you get somebody like this guy who is, you know, primed to see himself as, you know, uh, a, a real go-getter, you know, somebody who gets to the core of things that might be threatening America. And uh, you know, shades of co Pro, right? Um, so does I think everybody knows what Pro here here was. But uh, that was a that that was a program, and I don't know if it was started by um, uh, by Richard Dixon, but it certainly was beefed up under Richard Nixon, where uh, the FBI would infiltrate the Black Panthers, the American Indian movement, the peace movements, you know, all kinds of things that threatened America. You know, that uh, basically people who were speaking out against the injustices of their government in their country. And, you know, so that was uh, the church, the Senate committee, it was the church committee, I think in the 1970s was investigating this. And uh, so there was a whole bunch of reforms that the FBI supposedly put in place, you know, after the church committee's recommendation. But, you know, reforms are only so good as the enforcement mechanisms uh, in place and the culture of the organizations. And, you know, since, 9-11, you know, there has been a much more, I I would say radicalized, but much more law and order, national security state type culture tolerated even among Democrats. And I think especially among Democrats, it's become kind of toxic because the left is supposed to be opposing this kind of stuff. And, you know, I, if, if this becomes, none of what Trevor Anderson had reported really broke national press. I mean, the story of the Whitmore kidnapping was was sensational because, you know, it fed into the narratives of the time that, and the anti-Trump stuff going on 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 the Democratic Party. But, you know, when I started reading about it, I went, holy crap, this isn't, this story isn't what it seems like at all, um, but that's gone away because now the 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 top guy is in jail. So, the, but this one really should because, as I said before, you know, and you've heard me several times, every Black Lives Matter protest that my organization, Progressives of Kane County, or myself, I was involved in, was very very peaceful. Um, yeah, what had broke out—all the looting and trashing and fires uh, downtown Aurora, just a few miles from where I live, right? Or about a few blocks from where I live right now, was all some people that called themselves anti but they had no connection whatsoever with the people who were very peacefully protesting that day. Right. And I was beginning to suspect that there's something going on, you know, that there's something. There's just too many of these incidents. That are unfortunately smearing. We're smearing the Black Lives Matter protests, right? With this brush. Well,
1: anyway. yeah. We 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 should. Uh, uh, Professor Hussein has yes. uh, has a anyway. Um, let, let's turn uh, to Turkey and Syria. There was a massive earthquake. Twenty thousand people, I believe, and counting in Turkey and Syria. 16,000 dead that we know of in Turkey, 6,400 buildings collapsed. Uh, yeah. I, I think Erdogan called it the worst natural disaster of, of the past 100 years. Oh. I know that you visit Turkey all the time, Professor Hussein. And uh, yeah,
6: Yeah, I I think he's right that it is the worst. Um, I mean, it's interesting. uh, They're about to celebrate the centenary of the Turkish Republic. And so that 100 years is kind of meaningful, that this is probably the biggest disaster to hit uh, modern Turkey. Um, You know, it it eclipses, uh, I think, by we'll see. I mean, you know, the totals are not in and um you know we'll see how much uh the death toll and injured and devastation go up i mean um over the next few days um but it seems to eclipse even the 1999 um major earthquake that was that did affect uh part of the you know major city of Istanbul so in a very populous in a more populous uh, area perhaps um but the devastation here is just so wide i you know words are really probably inadequate to uh, express the scale and shocking devastation many people probably have seen some of these incredibly uh, dramatic and horrific videos of buildings just collapsing um and this happened there can
1: how many, how many weeks ago were you there?
6: Oh, I was there in the summer. Uh, so it's been a few months. Um, but I'm actually planning on visiting in May. And, um, you know, it's going to be a very interesting situation. I mean, that's also when about the time that the elections are scheduled currently. Uh, that's a whole other question and issue politically, the consequences of this, um, which we can talk about in a minute. But just to say that, you know, this is the South um southern part of turkey you know along the border of syria um this area is um actually unseasonably cold right now um in one of the major cities that was devastated malatia it was uh, minus eight celsius and it's about 18 degrees uh fahrenheit um so the people who have lost their homes um, so that we're talking about the survivors now. I mean, there's a secondary, uh, you know, major uh, crisis that is uh, happening as a result of this natural disaster. Is the you know fact that so many people are homeless? Uh, gas uh, lines have been cut off for fear of explosion, and so a lot of people are living without heat, electro electricity, potable water. Uh, for several days. I mean, you could see if the situation isn't um, dramatically reversed for the survivors and aid brought to them, that there could be large-scale, you know, deaths to exposure, uh, hunger, um, you know, diseases from lack of sanitation. And so the consequences of this could be truly horrific. I mean, we're really only totaling up now um, the deaths from collapse of these buildings Um, but um, you know we don't know the full full scale ultimately I mean and this was a pretty big earthquake I you know I'm from California grew up in California so you know I feel like I know earthquakes a little bit I was there during the Loma Prieta earthquake that brought down part of the Bay Bridge and you know, the uh, highway extension in Oakland that, you know, was an elevated highway extension that collapsed and crushed cars underneath. And um, of course, that caused quite a lot of damage. um, Ultimately, you know, several billion dollars worth of damage. But the loss of life is, you know, in the scores, you know, and that was a big earthquake. That was a scary, frightening earthquake. If you think about um a place like uh, Turkey where um you know construction standards and materials and some of the rapid construction that was done um in some of these um, kind of provincial cities and so on over the last 15 20 years it really becomes very serious when you think about how a 7.8 you know the Loma Prieta was a 6.9 this was a 7.8 you know, uh, earthquake on the Richter scale. And then it was followed. And this happened at 4 a.m. or so in the morning. So everybody's sleeping at home, um, which is another, you know, uh, factor in increasing, you know, the severity of the consequences and the death toll and fatalities. And then it's followed up eight hours, to 10, 12 hours later by a major second, you know, uh, earthquake at 7.5. So- This is really devastating. And um, uh, I think it's going to have a lot of consequences for Turkey. And the most immediate ones, of course, that everyone's thinking about are politically, because there have been concerns about um, the speed of the disaster response by the Turkish government. Let's recall and remember, this is the heartland and core, you might say, the kind of central and southern Anatolian population, uh, provincial uh, population that is the sort of core of Erdogan's base. I mean, he has, of course, been a masterful politician and put together various kinds of coalitions. And those kinds of coalitions have shifted, um, you know, um, over the course of the last 20 years in which he's been um, leader of the government. Uh, but it that has been remained a solid base of support throughout, which is the kind of Anatolian heartlanders um, who are outside of the really big cities and have their kind of um, he appeals to the simple populism of their concerns and um, has put a lot of money and investment in trying to extend um, you know, state services and state institutions into these areas that never had things like universities. So a lot of these provincial towns, he's established universities so that they could have, you know, higher education to a greater standard and not have to go to Istanbul or Ankara, the capital city um and leave their families. And often, of course, if you think about it, you know, that's expensive for poorer families to send, You know, a child, you know, to go live in another city and so on. So he did things like that. There were a lot of huge infrastructure projects uh airports you know regional airports that were built in these places like Hatay you know which is in Iskenderun along the, along the Mediterranean coast just north of Syria and is actually kind of disputed Syria claims that it's part of its territory but so he's invested in these kind of big infrastructure projects rapid housing you know developed uh, apartment blocks built in the last 20 years to provide more affordable housing in these kinds of towns and cities um police stations, all kinds of stuff. And uh, one thing that's so concerning is that a lot, you know, they can't get aid into um, some of these places because the airports have been thoroughly damaged, the runways damaged. Some of these, uh, you know, buildings, um, you know, have, have collapsed. So it really doesn't look good for the state you know, to have invested and, and with what kind of standards? I mean, Erdogan, Erdogan's government, the AKP party, basically came into power after the 1999 earthquake as part of this response against the corruption of building standards, like, you know, uh, the, the delay of the state to actually, you know, deal with the disaster and so on. Um, so AKP was looked to as a kind of good government, You know, they will be sincere. They care about us, um, us, the people, this kind of populist orientation. And that was, you know, what it was predicated on. So politically, a big disaster like the 1999 earthquake changed uh, Turkey's political future. The question is now, despite the fact that Erdogan has managed to weather all kinds of challenges and has a very divided opposition against him will this you know these circumstances really undermine the confidence that people have in this in the turkish state and in in their government because there were supposed to be all new kinds of standards in building after the 1999 earthquake there was a special tax instituted that uh, some economists um um, you know believe over the last 20 years w- uh, or so would have totaled about 3.8 billion you know uh dollars worth of, Um, dedicated specifically for disaster relief so the fact that um, it was somewhat slow I mean this was a huge earthquake it's not going to be perfect but a lot of people feel that you know the first 24 hours is absolutely crucial for saving as many people as possible you can you know usually rescue 74 percent of people under you know rubble if they haven't been you know crushed by the rubble. But if they're just trapped under the rubble, usually 74% of survivors can be rescued in the first 24 hours. It was very important that that happened. You know, the army wasn't called up in massive amounts, you know, in the first uh, initial hours. Um, you know, there were, people were wondering, where's the big machinery to lift? You know, uh, people we uh, were volunteering, but there was no way for them to really do anything effective because the equipment wasn't there. And of course, everybody in a disaster, you know, in a moment like this, wants it to happen immediately. And of course, there are infrastructural considerations, but this is supposed to have been prepared for. Um, 1999 was 17,000 people died. Um, so this is going to be really interesting to see. You know how the political effects and consequences quite beyond all of the you know economic devastation and so on but the elections happening only three months in the future is erdogan point,
1: running for re-election or, or well
6: yes yes he is he is running for re-election and um you know uh it's it's really this this could be a really big blow you know to his to his uh, political fortunes and chances um, so we'll have to see, you know, you know what that, uh, you know what 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 will happen as a result uh, of this. The only other component that I want to talk about since I focus mostly there on, Turkey is just to say that the situation uh, is even more dire, of course, in Syria, because we're talking about a country that's been devastated by an ongoing civil war that's fragmented, that doesn't have effective governance in a lot of the areas that are closest to the Turkish border up in the north and northwest part of Syria that were most, you know, were hardest hit. Some of these are the last rebel kind of controlled territories. Um, And, you know, these are people who are already refugees, and um, a lot of them are already refugees, and it's just absolutely devastating. What I cannot abide, however, is the fact that the Syrian government is still under sanctions. These sanctions have prevented the coordination and facilitation of relief through the most obvious mechanisms that are available of state institutions that have access. I just read a report that Today, the first real convoy of aid came into northern Syria, crossing the Turkish border. This is three, four days, you know, uh, on. And the reason why is because, of course, the area on the other side of the Turkish border is devastated by the earthquake, and the Turkish authorities are obviously making a high priority of dealing with the immediate, you know, rescue operations in the 10 provinces that they are dealing with. The fact that the aid has to go through Turkey because the U.S. government, other Western governments will not send the aid through Syria, the Syrian, through the Syrian government, is just absolutely shocking. And so I do not, you know, accept any of the State Department and this government's, like, statements about how much they care for the people and the crocodile tears if you are not willing, you know, to do what's necessary to save human lives uh, for the sake of pursuing Uh, politics, of regime change. That's what it's all about. And so instead of, you know, when this has been raised uh, with them about why can't you just lift the sanctions or why can't you work with the Syrian government in order to facilitate aid uh, going as quickly as possible to those who need it, you know. Uh, the administration, US administration has said that it's going to continue to do the kind of aid operations it has always done in the past with the, you know, uh, in the Sir- Syrian territories. It's not going to work with the Syrian government and floating all kinds of concerns and complaints about Syria using you know, the humanitarian disaster as a way to extend its influence into areas that are held by rebels and raising concerns that the Syrian government will, you know, possibly um, drain away, you know, and redirect aid, you know, that should go to these people. I mean, this is just the most absurd kind of, um, you know, set of concerns. Luckily, uh, a lot of other countries are violating the U.S. sanctions Mm -hmm. and, you know, sending aid directly. Um, And many of them are Uh, countries that are uh, under sanctions themselves so uh iran has sent a lot of of aid um cuba venezuela uh and um so what we see is um you know a really intolerable situation you know to watch the poorest you know countries that are already themselves under sanction being the ones who show the most solidarity with the needs of the syrians by uh, sending aid as quickly as possible through whatever channels are, are, are needed. And so I would say that we should really be putting pressure on the U S government to lift its sanctions, um, to stop punishing the Syrian people, uh, for, you know, the regime that they have, uh, that's the, those are the only effective institutions that are available to save, save these people. And, um, you know it's very interesting um i read the uh statement by um the um, uh, foreign uh, foreign ministry spokesperson from china um who just made all of the the points that he needed need to be said you know which is that you know Pointing out the US's frequent military strikes and harsh economic sanctions have caused huge civilian casualties. As we speak, US troops continue to occupy Syria's principal oil producing regions. They have plundered more than 80% of Syria's oil production and smuggled and burned Syria's grain stock. All this has made Syria's humanita- serious humanitarian crisis even worse. In the wake of the catastrophe, the U.S. should put aside geopolitical obsessions and immediately lift the unilateral sanctions on Syria to unlock the doors for humanitarian aid to Syria. This is an official spokesperson from the Chinese uh, foreign ministry. This is like that. You know, this is solidarity. This is the real truth of what's, what's going on. Right. And um, – you know, I just have to highlight that that of uh, the absurdity and the tyranny uh, and uh, heartlessness of the situation. And I remember that during COVID, when you know Iran was one of the early hotspots, and um, they didn't have access to medicines, ventilators, all kinds of you know treatments uh, and basic you know uh, medical supplies because of U.S. sanctions. And there were calls at that time also. To lift sanctions on Iran, and the Trump government refused to do so and maintained its maximum pressure policy. What is the difference between the Biden administration on these kinds of issues from the trump uh, you know, from the Trump administration?
1: We're giving did I read aid like something like less than a hundred million dollars in aid?
6: Yeah, and I read I mean, that's at least something. I mean, you know, I read also what, that, that's like. What, what, the European what Union was going to send 3.5 million euros. It's like, what, what are you talking about? You know, did he
1: mention I mean, it? When when was the earthquake? Was it before the State of the Union? Yeah.
6: Yeah, I think. Well, what, wasn't he, it on Monday morning? And he didn't. It was mention Monday it. morning in Turkey, which would have been, you know. Yeah. So it was it was even earlier for us. It was he didn't like, like late it. Sunday night.
1: Did he He didn't mention it during the State of the Union.
6: Well, why why would you? It's 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 politically unimportant, you know, uh, for the purposes of this uh, you know political speech to the American
1: uh, American electorate. Um, well, Turkey was instrumental, as you've been teaching us, in orchestrating peace talks between Russia and Ukraine, and watching the devastation, I thought about what you had said about Erdogan trying to bring peace to that region and how we can't wait to send weapons to Ukraine to create the situation that we see in Syria and uh, Turkey
6: yeah i mean uh let's hope that uh the one good thing that could come out of this is perhaps some resolution of the syrian you know crisis but that's exactly why we need to be making appeals for a humanitarian uh, perspective and approach you know let's end the suffering of the syrian people you know lift these sanctions encourage negotiations try and have a regional solution um So that uh, uh, you know this nightmare that uh, the Syrian uh, people have been experiencing for the last decade, basically, you know, can end and they can live some normal, you know, human lives. Uh, That should be, I think, the top priority.
1: Um, We are the we we, we are the least generous. Consequences
6: of the earthquake.
1: America is, in terms of percentage of our GDP, we are the least generous nation. In the industrialized world when it comes to foreign aid
6: but you know what's interesting is that politically you know people have this misimpression that vast sums of the u.s budget go to foreign aid and right. that we're just it's basically like you know they're the global welfare queens are living it up on u.s <laughs> largesse you know this is the yeah. american kind of perspective on it you know but americans uh, you know uh are also charitable people, even if they don't want their government spending their money for good purposes, they will often do it themselves, you know, out of sympathy and compassion. So, you know, if you do want to, um, yes, you know, provide aid, uh, Rahima has established, uh, Rahima Foundation, uh, uh, has established a special, uh, Turkey earthquake disaster relief, uh, fund, and you know. Um, my mother has lots of, you know, good contacts, and you know, we'll make sure that it gets to uh, people who need it. I think also, um, People's Forum um, is has got um, uh, a fundraiser, and they have also contacts to groups, um, you know, on the ground um, in Turkey and northern Syria. Uh, you could um, also donate through them. So the People's Forum also. So. Take your pick, but uh, I hope people will uh, do what the U.S. government won't, um, and that is actually have a heart and try and you know help help folks out.
1: Well, thank you. The best way to support is through Rahima.org. R-A-H-I-M-A.org, and uh, we should talk about. Well, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Everybody, thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Jonathan Beck, Professor Adnan Hussein. Everybody go to rahima.org and donate, please. Thank you. Joe in Norway. Yes, sir. That well, looks amazing. What did you do? If you bear with me one moment. Just in time. Oh, my God. That is... Absolutely gorgeous.
2: Just beautiful. Go. Just A nice beautiful. spicy stew with the uh, soybean base, fermented soybean paste. And I've got uh, tofu, potato, carrot, celery, squash, leeks. Wow. And I made some uh, sticky rice, glutinous rice. So it's very chewy. And then I pickled, quick pickled... Um, Chahote squash and carrots with sesame and, and rice vinegar.
7: Wow,
1: that is spectacular! And breakfast time. That makes a great breakfast, and it reminds us all to give to Rahima.org. That uh, mm. yeah, that is uh, beautiful. Office hours. What do we have scheduled for office hours? Um,
2: Steve K is going to be. Uh, showing some of his uh, art project, one minute videos. And uh, Annika will be presenting um, uh, a talk, which I'm still ironing out. We also have, of course, Professor John as well with the Twilight Zone. And then we have a couple free spots
1: in the okay. evening or later on. So, Fantastic. Thank you so much, Joe in Norway. If you want to thank this show, the best way is to go to Rehima.org. Thank you.
7: It's time right
4: now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckle in